you're ready to stop submitting basic applications and winging your interview for your next nursing role, whether you're a graduate nurse or a seasoned healthcare professional, we'd love to exclusively invite you to our secret nurse growth hub, where you can get all of the support to apply, interview and land your next nursing role completely free. All of the resources that we've shared and created over the last three years that have helped 3,000 plus nurses internationally apply, interview and land their next nursing role. So what are you waiting for? Come and join us today. It's completely free. LiamCaswell.com forward slash NGH. Come and join the Nurse Growth Hub today and let's make applying, interviewing and landing your next nursing role easy. Welcome to the High Performance Nursing Podcast, where we seek to coach, educate and inspire nurses globally to achieve their high performance potential. Learn from influential clinicians having curious conversations to help you navigate your unique high performance nursing career path. Join me, your host Liam Caswell, nursepreneur, coach and mentor, as we explore how you can create a balanced high performance nursing career. Let's do this. Welcome to the High Performance Nursing Podcast. And today we have a very special guest with us. He is a dear friend and uh, someone that I came across in Sydney many years ago. His name is Dr. Bushan Joshi. Bushan, welcome and thank you so much for being on the High Performance Nursing Podcast. I am thrilled that you're here. So let's kick off with uh, telling everybody a little bit about who you are and kind of where you're at in your career at the moment. Do you mind sharing? Well, well, thank you. Thanks for having me and thanks for the great introduction, Liam. I'm, I'm very grateful that you've chosen me to come on your amazing High Performance Nursing podcast. And congratulations for setting it up and, and good luck. So about me, as Liam said, my name is Bushan Joshi. I am a doctor that is working in Sydney. I work in the emergency department and I am an emergency medicine trainee. And what that essentially means I think most nursing staff would probably know what that means, but just in case, it means I'm training to be an emergency medicine consultant. And so I'm in the training program and um, registered to sit the exams or everything that goes along with the training. So typically with the registrars or the AT, and we typically kind of with the consultants run the emergency department. And typically we run night shifts as well, where the consultants are at home. I've been doing emergency medicine for probably a good six, seven years now. I came to Australia in 2011 and I've really been doing mostly emergency since then. I'm originally from the UK and in the UK I was doing um, acute medicine and emergency kind of a mix of the two. I also did a little bit of ICU and I finished med school in 2007. Originally Indian parents moved to migrated to the UK when I was two, grew up in England in London and then I've been in Sydney since 2011 and basically go home for holidays or or oh, I, I came for a year. I literally came for a year or for a holiday and then kept renewing my visa. And then now I'm an Aussie and <laughs> history. Such a good spot to be Australia. A few right. of our previous podcast guests are, uh, like us come from the UK and have landed in Australia. And it, it is just a great place to practice medicine and, and to be yeah. in the health system here. Thank you so much for sharing. You do lots of other things outside of work though. Would you mind sharing those with us? Yes, I do. Actually, outside of work, I do a few different things. I am the current chair of the 
Australian um, Association for LGBTQI Doctors and Dentists. I actually founded this organization when I arrived to Australia. I, I essentially came out during med school, the later years of med school, and I was surrounded by a culture of medicine. The UK, the UK is open to all sexualities and cultures, but it, the culture, the medical culture is a little bit more, I would say, conservative. So at work, I wasn't particularly out um, when I was younger in those days. I just qualified. I was a junior doctor, uh, an intern, and I, I didn't particularly feel comfortable coming out of work. But I joined an organization called GLAD in the UK, which was called the Gay and Lesbian Association of Doctors and Dentists. And I really found my home there. I found similar like-minded people. Um, I used to go to London Pride and other marches, and I really became comfortable with who I was. And then I moved to Australia a couple of years after that, and I came to Sydney with all the glitz and glamour, and and, and I basically watched the Sydney Mardi Gras, which is quite different to Pride marches we have in Europe, which are often daytime protest marches. Still, historically, that's what they are or were. And Sydney Mardi Gras is basically, I describe it as almost like a theatre on wheels. So I was blown away and I thought this was amazing. And um, following watching it one year, I decided that I would set up a doctor's float because Sydney Mardi Gras didn't have one. So all those eight years ago, I set up a doctor's float. Um, In fact, the first year we set one up was just me and some of my friends. We actually managed to recruit 100 people and we got an award for the best float the year we set it up. And I think that's been the instigator or the fire that's driven me to continue putting on a float for Mardi Gras for eight years onwards. So that's kind of what the organization really does. Glad Australia really puts on a Mardi Gras float, um, but we are expanding. This year has been interesting for the organization because of COVID and there's been a lot of media interest particularly with how the medical field has dealt with COVID, you know, uh, with the new changes of way of working and doing things. So um, we were, my organization in particular was interviewed by SBS this year. I myself did a couple of interviews for SBS, Hindi and various other news organizations. So it was a really nice time for the organization. And I think we we're in a nice process of evolution where we would like to expand and actually become a professional organization for doctors around Australia so that we can network and and actually provide this kind of home like I had in the UK, you know, like having social events, doing advocacy, writing letters to the government, being on government positions. So that's kind of coming. We've kind of started with the fun, which is really being out there and showing ourselves at Mardi Gras. But I think there is ample room for expansion in those areas. And that's kind of what one of the dreams or goals that I am pursuing um, probably over the next few years. So that, that's really nice. So that's, Glad Australia. The other thing I, I do outside of medicine and increasing, I, I came across this in the last two to three years was something called neurolinguistic programming. I came across this in 2016 or 2017. I was doing some locum shifts and I bumped into another doctor who was traveling um, from also from the UK. And we just got into an interesting conversation as, as we do about travel and communication and what enthuses us about medicine or how we came in to do what we do, why, why we do what we do, uh, what makes us do what we do. And so she suggested, I've always been interested in psychology or how humans do things. Uh, in fact, I remember, I remember applying for medical school and I did my extra year in psychology because I wanted to know how the body worked and how the mind worked. And so our conversation focused around communication and how she's been to a course that really works with communication and understanding the language of the mind, the symbols that the mind uses 
and how we can use those or reprogram those to make our lives better. And so I was immediately interested, <laughs> immediately. And I said, sign me up, sign me up, sign me up. So since 2016, following that, I, I signed up to a course in Sydney. I actually went with a company called NLP Worldwide, which I still uh, admire and you go to a lot. I did their level one course, which is called practitioner. And then following that a year later, I did their level two course, which is called master practitioner. And now I, I've repeated their courses a few times. And now I also go and I teach or assist kind of in their courses. So like when we were school kids and there's the actual teacher in the class, I'm a little bit like the teaching assistant. So that's, that's something else I've been doing on the side. And I hope to continue that. I hope to be doing level three, which is training to be an NLP trainer. And, and this was quite an unexpected in my career, but uh, I've enjoyed it so much that I, I now foresee potentially a career combining medicine and NLP, which will be, which will be, which will be lovely. I think that that would be a, a beautiful thing to, to create or in my life. So NLP, what, what additional things I've done? I've also, interesting on the side, just because I was interested in it, trained in numerology. So looking at people's names and what they mean, looking at people's date of births and, and understanding the energies that might be surrounding a person. Mm. So lots of varied interests, but I think that's very okay. useful and actually quite nice and grounding for the high intensity career that I have to have something mm-hmm. outside of medicine. Or particularly mm-hmm. emergency medicine. So, so I'm grateful for what I do, emergency medicine, but I'm also grateful for the life and career I have outside of medicine too. Mm. There's a few things that, thank you so much for sharing. There's a few things in there that oh, I would love to unpack a bit further. But first, I think there's a really good learning in that because I think as clinicians, sometimes I've certainly been in the situation where I have kind of really identified with Liam being the nurse and, you know, shift work and so on and so forth. And it kind of becomes all encompassing. And that kind of became my life for a period of time, whereby I, wa- I didn't have that balance of having things outside of work that was that was meeting my needs, you know, and things that kind of really triggered different thought processes. And I kind of got wrapped up in this world. Is that something you would say kind of you've been through as a doctor, being immersed in the medicine, because it's really time consuming. You guys invest so much time in study and development. Is that something that you... Yeah, 100%. And I'm still learning that. And I, I just, I think um, you just quoted there that, you know, uh, I, I can't remember the words you said, but uh, energy goes where attention flows or something like that. So mm-hmm. our, our lives are based around the thoughts and experiences we have. And so if we focus and make medicine just just medicine, then that that's going to be our lives. And and increasingly, I resonate with what you said, that, that it is very important to have that work-life balance. Um, I particularly knew that in the UK because the UK work culture was very different to Australia. I was working 50, 60, 70 hours a week. Part of the reason why I actually ended up moving to Australia was that it's a 40-hour week and I was actually earning more. That, that's important. That was kind of the backstory. But you are absolutely right in terms of the balance. I'm, I'm currently studying for my fellowship exams. And part of that balance has been making sure I can work, making sure I can earn a living, but also making sure I'm enjoying my studies and knowing myself enough that study is important, but having something outside that I know also inspires me and keeps me going. Because if I'm just studying then again, as you said, it, it perhaps isn't always meeting my needs that, uh, you know, I, I'm very enthusiastic about emergency medicine, but I, I also know that my life is is also bigger than that. And, and, you know, much like maybe a relationship or much like a friend or anything, 
everything has its uses, but you, I feel, I believe, I guess I cannot expect the one thing to fulfill all my needs. And I think that's why having that variety is ever so important purely from a, from a sanity point of view, but a, a pleasure point of view. And, and you can carry the things you learn from one area of life into another. And I, I found that increasingly useful. You know, if your, if your peripheral vision is very, very narrow, you can only see certain things. And if you widen up, I, I felt mm-hmm. that by doing NLP and by doing the work I do with GLAD, I think my interpersonal relationships, my patients and my, my colleagues has only skyrocketed. My leadership and teamwork has skyrocketed. So all these soft skills that, that I think in the past may not have been as valued. They're very, they're very in and they're very useful and they lead to better health outcomes. Mm. Well, the knowledge is really, really important. The knowledge is so important. The dedication that when you're on shift, you know, really to be present for your patients is all that's really important. But I, I mentioned a quote when I was filling one of your forms, you know, the grass is greener when you water it. So, you know. No, the, yeah, the grass is greener where, where you water it. Where you yeah. water it. But, but I, I also mentioned something else where you can only give when your cup is full. Mm. And, and I think mm. that's that's really, really, really true. But I think there is a culture these days sometimes of wanting to give, 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 or just put career, 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 career. But the question I would have for these people or myself or anyone in that situation is, is are you listening to yourself? Mm. What are your needs? Are they fulfilled? If they are, it's much easier to give love and give compassion when those are met because then you don't resent your job you actually want to go to work and you you can give love you can smile but mm-hmm. it's very hard when your your barriers are up or you're not full you know then you know fill yourself up first really is a is mm-hmm. I, I completely agree with you there i think we're seeing this huge shift in in healthcare across all disciplines where we're moving away from you know just focusing on somebody being a specialist and this amazing clinician in an area and really starting to focus on the fact that emotional intelligence you know um, do they have high levels of self-awareness how do they contribute in a, in a in a meeting or how do they communicate do they are they able to translate or transfer other skills from different areas in their life and bring them to work to complement the amazing work that they do as a clinician but i think we're putting more pressure now on the humane side, the humanity side of it, and really, like you say, looking at, you know, are we giving when our cup is empty? And what does that look like? Or are we giving when we are more self-aware and we understand what it is we can give and we know how to have those kind of challenging conversations that we tend to have day-to-day within healthcare? On the back of that, you know, that's something that I've done NLP. Um, I've not done it as many times as you have. I've done um, the NLP practitioner level one, and it blew my mind. And I know a few other nurses that I work with in this kind of podcast world, the happiness, Elena Mallory, she's done her NLP as well. And, and we always talk about how there is this kind of untapped gap market whereby we feel like every clinician should probably be taught NLP. What are your thoughts and learning specifically that translate into healthcare and your role as, a, as an emergency registrar from NLP? that you think would be worth sharing with? I mean, there's so, so much. A lot of the, <laughs> NLP, so NLP, what, what is NLP? So the history of NLP is a combination of lots of different things. So it's a combination of things like family therapy. It's a combination of like previous psychotherapy. But see, ultimately, it was a collection of different therapies, which has led to a process where one can understand 
the language and symbols of our own minds and how we store and process all our experiences and how we might change the way we do those um, so that we can produce better outcomes. It's very outcome focused, unlike traditional psychology, where I think um, like a psychotherapy would say, well, tell me about your problem. And then there's a lot of focus based on the problem. And then that's revisited and perhaps patients at some time have to relive or revisit their traumas. Whereas NLP will say, okay, well, you're here now. Great. That's okay. Where do you want to be? What do you actually want? And let's identify what's in your way and let's identify what resources you have and what you need. And if we can identify those and if the resources can be strengthened more than the interferences, or if we can work with the interferences, whether they be beliefs, habits, whether they be the way we perceive the world or whether they be, um, you know, just the way we do things or, un or, or even communicate, if we can change the way we do a lot of those things, then it gets us closer to our goal or perhaps even just gets us to our goal. You know, even if you get a step closer, that's still a win. And then you, you, you keep going. So, so it's very outcome focused. Um, a lot of what NLP does, there's different components. There's the linguistic component. So for example, if a patient says to me, well, I'm really depressed. So depression is a term you, if you, if you label someone as depression, then they have depression. They actually, you know, possess the qualities and you can ask someone how, what does depression look like? And they'll sit down and look downwards and it's a physiological state as well. But you could say to somebody, well, so you have been depressed. You've already put it in the past. So for a split second, the unconscious mind, NLP is a lot, very based on the unconscious mind, not the conscious thought processes. So if you, I mean, I often, reframe things for my patients and using mm. the linguistic component so i often say so you have been depressed and then they say well doctor yes i have been depressed and you go great so if you weren't depressed what would you like to be what does that look like well show me what it looks like what would you how would you stand how would you feel what would you say what would you do and you see their physiology change and they look up and things so for a split second their unconscious mind or their mind or their body whatever term you want to use for it has to feel it cannot not feel depressed at that moment in time and so you give them a snapshot of what it's like not to be depressed and so they can aim for that you can only aim for what you know or what you perceive or what you have in your conscious awareness or your unconscious awareness when it becomes conscious. So, so I use a lot of NLP like that. So I think mm -hmm. that's one of the ways I think clinicians or, or can use NLP. I think it, it's very linguistic. I use it a lot with teamwork and things like motivation, particularly on night shifts and when checking in with people are okay. And the way we walk, you know, the way we use our physiology, it's very interesting. Different people use different rep systems. So there are systems where I think some of your podcast members might be familiar that people are more visual or more auditory or more kinesthetic, meaning that some people, when you're trying to do a project at work, you can say, well, would you like me to show you how to do that? Would you like me to tell you how to do that? Or do you want to give it a go? And I'll, I'll you know, and then, and then, and then see how that feels. And, and that works. It's the same instruction, but it works different for different people because their brain primarily processes things with their primary rep system. So that's another way of using the linguistic aspect of NLP. The, the N really is for neurology. So really looking at the conscious and unconscious mind and the stored patterns and habits and behaviors and how they can be changed and manipulated to become 
our, you know, for us to become our better selves. And then but all of those kind of combine and the P of NLP becomes, you know, basically the programs that we run. So we've got a program to brush our teeth. We've got a program to get out of bed and just increasing our awareness and understanding of that helps us change those if we need to or keep them or modify them. So how is it used in the workspace? I guess linguistically the most, but I also also use it in terms of like, so if someone says, I want to stop smoking, asking better questions is another way. Mm-hmm. I, I, for what reason do you want to stop smoking? What would that give you? So it digs deeper, um, deeper under the surface rather right. than why do you want to give up smoking? Yeah. It's yeah. a very ambiguous question. Mm. I think like you just explained it beautifully and maybe I definitely need to go back and do another week of NLP <laughs> because that was a good refresher for me. The reframing, I think, as a clinician is a very powerful tool, not only just for patients, but also for yourself. You know, having that moment to reframe and stop and reframe your thinking. One thing that you just talked about the bad resuscitation. I'm really scared right now. Or versus, hmm, I've done this before. I'm a bit nervous. That's normal. Mm. Uh, you've got this. And even mm-hmm. even putting even that even small reframe sometimes is very, very, very useful. Or or actually authenticity is better than perfection. That's a beautiful reframe. Mm. Authentic. Let's really try for our patients. Let's do our best rather than, oh, I last time I did this, this was a disaster. Well, no, that's not, that was last time. What about this time? Can I just say that again, just so that it processes in my brain? Authenticity is better than perfection. Yes. I love that. That's that is so good. It's one of my favorites. It's one of my favorites because it is who we are. Mm. Mm. If you are who you are, that, that's one of the most amazing things. Mm. That that is you. That is us. And if you can truly be that, well, nothing really gets in your way because mm. because there aren't that. Even if you have imperfections, that's you. That's cool. And yeah, it's totally fine. It's okay. You know, we are one in like a billion, billion, billion people alive on this planet with this genetic makeup that's made in this present moment in time. Whoa, that's mm. incredible. People forget that, you know, we're in this vast, crazy universe and we're a blip, but there's no one else like you. Mm. Whoa. Yeah. And, and, and you're doing this job, but you know, like, of course you're doing your best. Of course you're doing your best. So, so keep going. It's okay. I mean, mm-hmm. if you ever ask any of your senior clinicians how many mistakes they've made, I mean, they may not be honest with you, but they've made mistakes. Like that's normal. If you focus on the mistakes, you'll you'll only give attention to the mistakes. If you focus on, look, this is this is hard, but but you know, actually challenges make a person better. Even if you say this is challenging, but actually this is great because this is going to make me a better senior clinician, mm-hmm. or this is this is thing, but I've got this, or this is this is how how I get stronger. I mean, if you go to the gym and never lift a weight and or, or never push yourself, well. You know, I mean, how do people get stronger? So it's mm-hmm. the word we use with ourselves. It's that reframing in the moment, in the moment. And real NLP isn't a class. Or, or it's, it's, it's living, the living speech you have in your own brain to yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the work starts when you step out of the class and you have to put it into practice. I'm really interested to explore because of what I'm hearing from you time and time again. And because today I went to a Brene Brown <laughs> workshop, well, and it's in the forefront of my mind. So I need to talk about it is, you know, this idea of authenticity. And you talked about talking to your senior clinicians or your senior managers and leaders, 
and asking them to be vulnerable, potentially asking them to explore things, their, their, you know, their mistakes, their learnings. In my experience as a nurse, I haven't had great exposure to that in senior leaders and that vulnerability or authenticity. I don't know if I would necessarily ask my senior clinicians to be vulnerable, but it's important to know that they've also made mistakes. So sometimes if I know that that pushes them somewhere, it's, it's, I wouldn't ask that question. But for myself, it's a personal thing to know it's okay to be vulnerable. Mm. Well, I don't particularly wish to make my senior clinicians feel vulnerable. vulnerable but yeah. by ourselves being vulnerable, it's actually very hard for the other person not to be. Mm. They, mm. They, might, mm. they might put their shields up. That's okay. That's on yeah. them. But I, I've had quite an interesting experiences in my career where I have made mistakes. And if, I, if you go to the right people, you know, I've, I've cried after making a mistake and I've spoken to a senior clinician and gone into a room and burst into tears. And it was great. Mm. And they said, don't worry, because, you know, that's what's happened. But then they supported me and also said, you know, the mistakes they made. Now, had they not done that, that would have been okay. But even... It, the acceptance of myself be, being okay to be vulnerable in situations allows the recipient or the, the senior clinician also to acknowledge and say yes or no or things. You know, mm. there are two ways it could go. They could go, well, that was just terrible. Um, but perhaps that's an indication that you're in the wrong work culture. Mm. Or, mm. or you, you, you show up as you, you know, you keep showing up as you are. Or they will accept yeah. and understand. Yeah. But I think with the with a wave of people who are more authentic, I think that culture is gonna it's gonna shift. That's where I was heading. Yeah, that authenticity. It's gonna shift anyway. You know, if there are people who are authentic, then the ones who aren't, it's gonna break their shell anyway. You know, Mm -hmm. I I don't force, I don't try and change the other. I always try and change. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. I guess the link there that I was trying to make and still trying to process after my day with Brene, well, not literally with Brene, but she was in the room on video call, is that link between being an authentic leader, because in your position, you are, you know, you are a go-to senior leader within your area and within your specialty. And authenticity is obviously something that you strongly value. And vulnerability is like a significant component of that is what I'm hearing. Of course, that's not across the board with everyone, but like you just talked about, that's something that the industry is moving towards slowly but surely, is that we have more authentic leaders who are willing to embrace who they are, willing to be vulnerable about the mistakes that they've made so that they can share that learning with junior clinicians so that when it happens for them, they they know how to process it. What, what's your kind of take on that? Would you agree? I would agree. And, and I can even just share examples I've literally just finished a set of nights and we had a nurse who was junior and she was new. I mean, part of, part of my role as a senior emergency clinician is not only to support the doctors, but also the nurses, you know, because it is an M multidisciplinary team. Part mm-hmm. of the thing I'm most grateful about in the emergency department is that multidisciplinary team. But anyway, the story goes, she had, uh, we had a patient who had been a victim of sexual assault and the patient had, come into the emergency department and just had an interview with the specialist doctors and the nurse inadvertently in the waiting room just mentioned, well, now that you've finished with this type of doctor mentioning those words, which obviously would have been hurtful to the patient, the patient heard. And I think a few of the other people in the waiting room heard, and then the patient went off and walked out. Unbeknownst to the nurse, 
or myself or anybody else, we didn't realize the patient was upset. I, we, we thought the patient just wanted to leave and we were under the impression that, which we knew that the patient could have waited for a psychiatry review, which they had expressed, but they said, oh, it doesn't matter. Maybe I can see my GP. They hadn't expressed anything nasty like uh, or anything worrying like um, suicidality or anything. But she mm. walked off and then she came back. And it was only when the patient returned, she said, doctor, do you realize what this nurse has done? She has told everybody about my medical condition uh, or what's happened to me. And so I diffusing the situation, I understood what had happened to the patient. We, we helped the patient. Um, she sat in a separate waiting area. We apologized. We, we got the appropriate services and things, but it was the nurse also that is part of that process and that I wanted to speak to. And it's these little moments because if you don't help your colleagues in these moments, even if you debrief later, that memory is potentially not for everybody, but potentially for staff put in, in instilled in their brain at that point going, Oh my God, I can never do that again. Oh my God, I was so terrible. And, and that those, those, that little program gets installed and that's what keeps happening every time they come on shift or they remember that depends, depends on who the person is for some people that can be a thing. And then it becomes this PTSD like thing. So, you know, I did, I, she, the nurse came up to me and she said, I'm sorry. And I said, well, for what, you know, because that this could have happened to anybody. And well, remember where you are, you know, you are still a first year and, that's normal. And now, you know, mm. isn't, that, isn't that incredible? Isn't that wonderful? Now, mm. you know, and I just smiled and said, that's great. And I said, you know, this is an NLP tip. I said, look over there, just see yourself over there. That's the past. Put yourself there. Watch yourself there. Know you've made the mistake. Now stand here. This is the present moment. Now, 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 how do you feel about that? That's dissociated. It's, it's done. Just, just look at what you learn. And look at you over there. And I pointed to the future and said, we know you're going to be a fabulous nurse. You know, you already are, but you know, you're going to grow. You're going to, you know, you're going to teach this to someone else. Mm. That's the important thing that because of this mistake, you know, the mistake will not happen 10 times more because that'll be part of your training when you train someone else. And I said, you know, if you get stuck here now, you can't help the rest of this waiting room. Mm. So part of your job is to, is to move on because that's part of your training and part of your job, but part of you knowing that you've got this and knowing that you're going to be a better person and knowing that that's going to be part of the things you teach other people and go, go do your thing. And, mm. and, and you're fine. It's okay. Mm. And I think that was really important for her, you know, and even just going and she just went, thank you. And, you know, and, and a bit of a smile. And it, it's it, people are sometimes taken aback when, when they hear this at work, because they're not used to such things very aware and I, I do try and help when I can in these situations. Mm. Not everybody will, will latch on to that. Yeah. The tendency at work sometimes for people to go, oh, well, there, there, that's okay. Without that second layer of just going in and releasing people from those emotions. Sometimes people need us to do that. Some people can do it themselves, but sometimes you just need somebody external to remind them that, you know, that's a one single fragment, one single moment in time that is probably now insignificant. It could mm -hmm. still be a big thing. Yeah, sure. I agree. But, but there is this whole vastness and wideness around it and the future. And, you know, mm -hmm. so, so yes, people make mistakes, you know, it's okay when that happens and not that we shouldn't be sorry about them and not that we should not learn from them but they happen, accept, understand, and move. The, the th one of the three pillars of NLP, interestingly, is um, awareness. So aware it's happened, acceptance, and then action. Mm. 
Mm. And it's a really nice way to do it. You go, okay, well, I'm aware. Okay, I can accept. Okay, what action do I want to take now? And so again, that solution focused idea or theory of where we're going is very, very important. So I try and actually do that, you know, I mean, and that was an interesting example where, where one can use authenticity to not get bogged down by our jobs because the high performance jobs that we do, these things happen, but we mm -hmm. forget that we make, you know, we might make one mistake, but we do a thousand things right. And yet, you know, I think that's why, one, I absolutely love that approach to the conversation that you had with that nurse. I can imagine that that will have a long lasting impact. And I think that's something that we maybe don't pay particular attention to. And it's a general sweep, sweeping statement. But as leaders, the, those conversations have long lasting impact on, on people's mindset, people's self-worth we have to be so careful about how we approach those uh, difficult conversations. And right. I think that the way you did that was beautiful. I think it's our job as leaders. I, I believe one can't be a leader if we're not leading by example. Mm. And one also can't be a leader if we're really not helping others around us as a top priority. Yeah. I imagine going to work sometimes and spreading this energy that I have in lifting the team I work with. I, I take pride in being the team leader, particularly on night shifts. And mm -hmm. it's my shift, it's my department. And so everybody's welfare is my welfare. And that that to have that, even that change of that reframe for myself, or even just the, the way I perceive that shift has really changed the way I, I do things now. Mm, and and mm. I, did anybody teach me this? No. Was it NLP? Maybe it was NLP. Maybe I, I, it was just something I was learning over time because you see, here's another interesting kind of quote, be the leader that you always wanted to be looked up to when you were younger, but you never had. Mm, and so, mm. so be, become what you never had, become the leader that you, you want, you always wanted in your life. And I, I'm, I'm now trying to be that leader that the younger Bushan probably didn't have Mm -hmm. And that could, because I don't want that to happen to anybody else. Mm -hmm. If I had an experience like that, that's how I want to be spoken to. So that's, that's where I think all of that originates from. Ah, it's a Gandhi quote, you know, be the change in the world that you want to see or something like that. Mm -hmm. So in terms of your leadership in a busy, busy emergency department on a night shift and you're, you're in charge, talk us through like what, how do you prepare for that? Because you work in a very busy emergency department and you see lots of very different cases and presentations. And of course, nowhere in healthcare is predictable, but in ED it is just, you know, can be, yes, quite confronting, I guess, challenging yet rewarding. How do you navigate that as a leader? You've talked already about like lifting the team and using your energy and being that positive force, but what else could other people in a similar situation you know, take from you to see today and, and implement into their practice? I guess know that you're not alone. The team will support you if you support it. And medicine is just medicine. If you don't know something, you can look it up. Mm. Being the knower and feeling like you always need to be right or being the learner. You don't always yeah. need to be right. Yeah, exactly. You can always, you can yeah. always call a friend. Mm. You're never alone. Even as a consultant, you, you can speak to your colleagues so that you can always dial a friend. If you need to act no one's going to pull you up in court as to why you did something. You did something with the belief that that was the best thing at the time. So just act. Mm. Decision is better than no decision. 
that's one of the nice things I said to one of my juniors this shift. Well, <laughs> like, make a decision. What if you're wrong? So what? Make a decision. Mm. So decision is better than indecision because then you're just in the same place anyway. Yeah, support your team. Your team will support you. Be authentic. You can always look something up. Is there anything else? Really, how else do you prepare? Well, you know, you don't, again, as you quite rightly, as you said, you don't need to know everything. And the really difficult things, they're really simple. Cardiac arrest, it's really simple. Mm. Um, big trauma, well, it's simple. There's an algorithm, right? So the really hard stuff, there's an algorithm. Mm. So the really hard stuff is kind of taken out of your hands anyway. Right? The hardest, the hardest stuff that, that we're not taught is it's not the algorithms. It's yeah. how to talk to the daughter of the mother who got an aneurysm who's going to pass away who can't be resuscitated mm. that's the challenge mm. not the okay well we're on cycle four we now need to give adrenaline okay let's do it there's a picture you can look at the picture just follow the picture right the challenge is when to stop resuscitation the challenge is which ghostbusters are you going to call cardiology respiratory the challenge is talking to inpatient teams and getting admission or discharge or various follow-up facilitated but that that comes with just experience and that comes with good bedside manner or good team team manner good talking sweet talking is a great thing in emergency just always be nice and Mm. you know sometimes the conversations may not be as fruitful but apologize and say well i don't know and i was doing my best and that's what i knew at the time and you know here's what i've got and that, that authenticity, when, when you, it's very difficult for someone to really have a go at you, really, really, really have a go at you when you're quite authentic. Mm. And they might. That's okay. That's on them. But, but, you know, it's very hard when you're open and honest and saying, well, I, I was only doing my best and here's what I've done. Mm. I am loving the reframe of the whole, you know, actually a cardiac crisis is quite simple. And I, I, it is, as you say that, I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, of course that is, because there is a pathway there. There's something to guide us and step us through it. You're not alone in that moment. In fact, there's too many people there usually to bounce ideas off and walk through it. Um, but it's pretty stock standard. And that's a really, probably a really good insight for maybe undergraduate nurses or anybody that's training and uh, listening to think about. Because often when I talk to students, I do a bit of clinical facilitation they'll tell me, oh my goodness, we saw the Met Collar, we saw cardiac arrest, and it's all very exciting. And they see it as this challenge and to, uh, rewarding to be part of it. But I guess the challenge is, is how do you balance the team? How yeah, do that's the, How do you make sure everyone's doing the right thing? The mm-hmm. algorithm, I mean, again, remember, it's, if it's not cardiac arrest, it's just, is it, it's ABC. There's, a, there's quite a few scenarios where as an emergency registrar, I won't know what's actually happening, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm, deducting from basic principles, going through what I know, and then working through it. Mm, mm. Um, and if I don't know, well, you know, I call for help. And as a consultant, I'm, I, I can't speak as a consultant because I'm not a consultant yet, but I, I am so sure if they don't know, then they call a colleague. Yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, like you say, the hard stuff lies in those skills that we're not necessarily taught, or they do just naturally come with experience. But Adding on to that, which we've talked a lot about, is how do you then manage your mind? How do you work through your your general representational systems and work through your programs and your internal unconscious biases and, and your experiences when they're triggered or they come up frequently? I think that is the missing link 
in undergraduate training, in hospital education okay. training, mentorship coaching. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think so too. But it comes from awareness. Mm. Just the more you become aware of yourself or the one more one becomes aware of oneself, then, then it's kind of revealed to you. You know, the more because there's different ways of that ways that we process things or we learn there's, there's your, I think uh, you're unconsciously unconscious to what's going on. Like you just have no idea. Then you're conscious to what's happening unconsciously. You start becoming aware then. So that that's really frustrating because you, all you see is your mistakes. All you see is you're just aware of when you're doing that thing or getting angry when that person said that or mm -hmm. behaving in a certain way, but that's only the start. And then once you, then you become consciously conscious of what you're doing. So then, then you go, okay, well, well, every time I have this conversation, it's really hard. Every time I speak to the radiologist, this is what happens. Every time I speak to a patient who's, who's angry at me, or who's taken drugs and I've got a bias against that or, or is smells and I don't want to work with them, you know? And so then I'm consciously conscious of that happening rather than being unconscious. And then, and then, and then, the, then it's the flip is, is switched at some point you go, well, okay, I know that's happening, but I'm okay. And now I'm doing my job and I'm feeling this role. So it's, it's that hat that I almost wear or what I'm doing. And so you can put your biases aside. You recognize that you have them. So you're conscious of them. And then it becomes this, you're unconsciously skilled mm. at just doing that because you've done it enough times that then it doesn't bother you. Yeah. So I can't remember the exact details, but that's also. You know, you've, you've, you've detailed that beautifully. And I think that's such a good learning for people listening because it kind of explains the phases of transition, the phases of moving through different roles or coming to a graduate year or moving up from you know, a junior doctor to a registrar. Like you go through that cycle of you know, the, the conscious, unconscious, and then you get to the point of mastery or that. You know, you're not thinking about it anymore because it's like driving a car. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, I had some coaching recently where someone said to me at that point, you can continue to just master that skill, but you might find you plateau. And that's where it's an opportunity to switch it up and challenge yourself again and try and look at another area where you can become the novice again. Or you, or you help others or you keep, keep sharing because then that only, only multiplies what you know. Yeah, absolutely. You continue to build on it. But I just thought that was interesting because, yeah, you know, it's something we build up to. We get there. We can do it with our eyes closed. And they related productivity to that. I'm not sure how you feel about that, but they related to the fact that when you do master something, you, you're you a bit quicker at it, but you might, depending on the situation, take a little bit longer to do it because you're like, oh, I can get to that. It'll only take me five minutes instead of it normally taking me 30 so you might put it off a little bit more. So that's kind of where they came from, this whole like, oh, change it up and, and put it one of, nice, one of the nice pearls I have for uh, often junior doctors is if you find a particular skill or an area difficult, that's precisely the area you should be doing. <laughs> Brilliant. If, you, if you don't like doing the neurological exam, that's exactly what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. If you don't like looking at people's eyes and teeth and, or if you don't like doing the throat exam, that's exactly what you should be doing. <laughs> so you should purposely be picking up those patients and looking at those patients because that's exactly the area where you need help. Definitely. Yeah. Lean into it and challenge yourself. That's where the growth lies. Yeah. That's Absolutely. where you find the most growth rather than staying comfortable.
I absolutely love what we've chatted about tonight. I wanted to ask you a few more questions, one particularly around culture and workplace culture in the emergency department. You've talked about that. It can be in the broader hospital setting. We've talked about authentic leadership and how being authentic and being yourself really helps to uplift the others around us. What are some of the things that you're seeing in culture or some things that you think we need to focus on or maybe something you're doing great in that area to, to lift others up around you to improve patient outcomes as well as staff well-being? Uh, I think having a culture that supports each other is really important. And I think increasingly that's happening, although perhaps more can be done. I think wider healthcare, a lot of work needs to be done on mental health. I think we're grossly underfunded. Mental health for our patients, mental health for ourselves, mental health for the staff, mental health for colleagues, being in tune with our emotions, being in tune with who we are and utilizing our own qualities and skills and bringing these into work is, is you know, it's, it's huge. It's huge how we communicate and how we behave and how we do things. And I, I think that's a very uncharted kind of territory. I think creating an aspect of safety at work is also important. So feeling safe as we actually are. So whether that be LGBTQI or multicultured, I think Australia, Australia wide, I think a lot more can be done in the field of, of culture and color and ethnicity. And I think we have a long way to go, you know, um, and I think there's a lot of work to be done in this area where we can actually help our patients, staff and other people feel safe to be who they are. It starts with safety, but once someone feels safe, safe enough that they can express and then be creative of who they actually are. So, you know, people will not directly come and share their culture with you until they'll feel safe sharing their culture. And I think there's a lot of work to be done in those areas and, and workplace culture based around, particularly in emergency medicine or other specialties around exams and helping colleagues maneuver what is potentially a challenging time in their lives balancing work balancing exams uh, and keeping sane through that process and supporting colleagues through that process i think there's a bit of work to be done there too mm-hmm, definitely two more questions what do you keep what keeps coming up for you as a clinician or as an individual that you know but you need to keep relearning is there something that keeps coming up for you? Oh, I have so many of these things that come up all the time. Yes. So patience. Mm. Patience. Yeah. Put yourself first. You can only give when the cup is full. Mm. Mm. And the grass is greener where you water it. Yeah. So, so I, I create my own life. Mm. And I create every day. And what it will become what I make of it. You know, there is there's two schools of thought. There's fate that everything just happens to me or, or I control my own life and, and well, I'd rather go with, I control my own life, you know, and, and have some, some use over it. Carl Jung said a really interesting quote, something like you'll keep living, things will keep happening to you and you, and something, 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 and you will call it fate or until the, until you became aware of the unconscious programs or something that are happening in your life, things will happen to you and you will keep calling it fate. Mm, mm. So good. I've got to find that quote for you. Yeah, oh no, I love it. I love all the quotes. I'm a sucker for quotes. Uh, I think it's important for people to recognize that. Yeah, like there, there are things that we we do need to keep relearning. 
that just keep cropping up for us. And you know, realistically, in a world that in the world that we live in in, in healthcare, you know, it's a good learning is that we don't have a lot of control over the stuff that happens day to day. We can only control. We can only control how we react to it. That's what I mean. That's how it's, we react it's, to it. it's how do we set up a life outside work and and how are we consciously making an effort in those spaces rather than trying to you know change somebody's behaviour at work or. I think, I think the quote was something like, until you make the unconscious conscious, things will keep happening to you and you'll call it fate. Mm, 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 mm. So deep. <laughs> Final question. How do you define high performance healthcare? Well, a very interesting question. So leadership, authenticity, yep. and compassion. Mm. Beautiful leadership, authenticity, compassion. Mm. So good. Just let that sink in, people. <laughs> I have really loved having a chat to you, Rishan, this evening. Oh, it's been it's thank you for having me. This has been this has been amazing. A beautiful experience for myself. I'm in awe of of how you have put NLP and, and taken that and brought it into your med- medical practice as a clinician. And I just love hearing oh, I'm such a sucker for a good culture story and such a good authentic leadership vulnerability perspective and lens within healthcare. I think that it's like you say, people are doing more of it, and that is just vitally important for healthcare in a pre-COVID and a post-COVID world, and that we continue to move in that direction of starting to really continue to focus on our patients and deliver there, but also start really to look at the staff and look at the workforce and how we can elevate the support around the workforce. And I, I think it's amazing the work that you're doing in that space. Um, and, and I think it starts with us. It you does. Know, yep. Yep. It starts with us. And if there's an expectation that somebody will give that to us, I think that's also false. You know, we, we are the leaders ourselves. Mm. And I think it starts with us. And, and we can be that cultural change that we want to see. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you so much for your time. And I hope you guys listening have enjoyed this. If there's been any key insights, please uh, share it on your social media or leave us a review. We'd love to hear back from you. But until next time, thank you, Michelle. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the High Performance Nursing Podcast. Please rate, review and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. I would love you to join my online community of high performance nurses. Join us on Facebook at Liam Caswell or check out my website at liamcaswell.com. Until next time, I have been your host, Liam Caswell, and I am truly grateful for the opportunity to help you build your high-performance nursing career. Be kind to yourself and stay forever curious.